This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and activist Sillai Abrams on her search for racial identity. Sillai reads from her new memoir, Black Lotus, and is joined in conversation by CIIS's Laura Reddick. This conversation was recorded on August 18 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Black Lotus opens with a quote from James Baldwin. And um, the original quote for the book was, were the lyrics to the song Motherless Child. And about uh, a couple months prior, right before we were doing the last edits, a woman that I had become acquainted with on social media sent me this quote. And it spoke to me. It it was just like, this is it. This is it. And so... um, I switched it out and put this in. And what, what I found very, and I believe in symbolism. I really, um, I believe most of the time that everything happens um, for a reason, except when it's not what I want. <laughs> then I question it, but eventually, uh, in retrospect, I see the spiritual lesson. However, um, what, is very, what was very intriguing to me was that my book, Black Lotus, was actually released on um, on James Baldwin's birthday. So how serendipitous is that? All right, so I'm going to start. All you are ever told in this country about being black is that it is a terrible, terrible thing to be. Now, in order to survive this, you have to really dig down into yourself and recreate yourself, really, according to no image which yet exists in America. You have to impose. In fact, this may sound very strange. You have to decide who you are and force the world to deal with you, not with its idea of you. So I thought that was a very appropriate quote um, to, to open the book. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read um, from the prologue. After a couple of minutes of small talk, I knew. I knew it was going to happen tonight. I was about to cross the threshold from just a girl to a girl with sexual appeal. I was on the verge of my very first French kiss, and I had absolutely no idea how the hell to do it. Matt began to lean in toward me. Everything was moving in slow motion as our faces came together with expectant tension. My mind raced over how I was going to execute this foreign dance of tongues when he suddenly pulled back to a comfortable distance and said, You aren't black, are you? No, I said in a loud stammer. I'm not black. Okay, cool. He leaned back in and pressed his mouth against mine. Instinctively, I opened my mouth and allowed his tongue to slip between my lips. My mind was buzzing with fear that he would scratch up against my braces. 
Holding my breath, I did my best to follow his lead. His tongue entered my mouth, then mine his seven times, then capped off with a peck on the lips. I literally counted each stroke of his tongue and with each touch wished that it would end. The uncertainty of my technique was killing me and I didn't want him telling everyone that I was a bad kisser. As our bodies moved apart, I felt an instantaneous disconnect from the boy I had fantasized for months about kissing. With the sexual tension gone, we were once again two relative strangers facing each other in the shadows of the skating rink. After a moment of uncomfortable silence, Matt said, well, I gotta go, I'll see you around. Yeah, see you was my quiet reaction. I, walk, I watched as he walked away and reconnected with his best friend and fellow skater boy, Robbie, who had just emerged from the back of the rink with his latest sexual conquest. Rushing to the building entrance, I waited for my friends Meredith and Wendy to come outside so we could catch a ride home together. I saw them smiling and waving as they exited the rink. Their faces were a relief. Where did you go, Salai? Wendy asked. I hesitated for a moment, then told them both what happened, what had happened between Matt and me, leaving out his question about my race, of course. Good for you. You finally had your first kiss. Did you like it? Was he a good kisser? I didn't know if Matt was a good kisser or not. After all, I had no frame of reference. But I laughed and said, yeah, he was good, as we watched my mom pull up in our family's eight-passenger van. I didn't say much during the brief 10-minute ride home. Once we pulled up into our driveway, I hugged the girls goodbye and ran into my house. After brushing my teeth and washing my face, I went to my room and lay on my bed. Doing as I had done so many times before, I stared up at the ceiling in the dark. My mood was disturbed. A first kiss is supposed to be a happy teenage moment, or at the very least, a triumphant one. Yet mine was overshadowed by the fact that I had to lie about who I was in order to achieve it. Had Matt asked me the question about my race three weeks earlier, it would have been an honest answer. As far as I knew up until that point, I was Chinese, white, and Hawaiian. But I had just found out the truth about my racial identity and paternity, so what I had told him was a conscious lie. It sullied our already awkward interaction with shame. My takeaway from my first kiss wasn't sexual, it was social. I learned that if I ever expected any boy to touch me, I would have to lie about who I was. One of the things about writing, writing this book that I wanted to kind of preface, as you can see, or will hopefully all buy my book, um, but as you'll see as I'm reading, um, and even as you hear me communicate, I'm a Cancer. Anyone an astrology buff in the room? Anyone? Yeah, okay, so I'm a Cancer with a Scorpio moon and Taurus rising. So I'm like all about feelings. And so this book is a very, um, it's a very emotional book. It's one that is, if, if you're looking for a book that is a, um, sociological exploration on the phenomenon of racial identity and gender politics and family, uh, family dynamics and racial identity formation. This is not the book for you. Um, it, it does cover all of that, 
but you've got to be able to read between the lines. And it's really in the storytelling that um, all of those subjects are, are um, explored. And I wanted to kind of state that up front because I think that um, the expectation when reading about a story such as mine, um, there is a lot of interest in, ac in academia um, from I was actually quite surprised that women in academia chose this as one of their books um, that they featured on their site for for women scholars, and so I said, "Wait a second, <laughs> there's something going on here um, with it." But I but I did want to make it clear to all of you here um, how how the story is told um, and and. Uh, set some, some right expectations. Because I did get a really rank review by a woman who was pretty upset that I, you know, she expected me to give a primer on, on how to raise multiracial children and how to become biracial or, you know, I just didn't meet her expectations, sorry. And so, um, I realize that there may be other in individuals out there who are seeking those type of answers, and I can't provide that. I am simply a woman with a story, and that's what I'm here to do tonight. To give a little bit of context um, for this next passage, I have two more passages um, that I'm going to read from. So, as was stated, I so I grew up believing I was one one race in. With a, with a father uh, who was actually not my biological father. And um, it was around the age of seven or eight that I was able to finally recognize that I was not like my siblings, even though it was quite obvious and blatant in our appearance that I was not like them because my father had told me and the rest of his family had reinforced this lie. Um, you know, I, I went along with it because why would my dad lie about something like, you know, so basic. And according to what I've read about, um, yeah, about children becoming aware about race and racial differences, it's usually between the ages of six to nine, um, when that happens, when we can see those differences and be able to articulate it, unless, of course, you're, you're raised in a home filled with um, a lot of conversation about race, um, then you can become aware at a much younger age. But typically, we don't have the words to describe what it is, what makes me different from Asher or Cynthia, right? Uh, so... Kyle. Um, so what I'm going to read now um, is kind of that moment where it, it, it clicked in my brain that one of these things was not like the other. The Delanos liked to socialize and regularly, regularly held barbecues at different family members' homes. It was at one of these gatherings that it finally clicked in my head that something was seriously off between me and the family I was getting ready to inherit. I was just a few months shy of my eighth birthday, and like other children, I was beginning to understand that I had an identity outside of Salai the individual, that I was part of a larger collective, which in this case looked nothing like me. 
On that breezy, hot California day, I observed my soon-to-be cousins, aunts, and uncles mingling with my family and noticed the uniformity of their skin color. For the first time in my life, I was able to actually admit to myself that I looked very different from both my new family and the one of my origin. As my eyes scanned the pool area, I saw nothing but the whiteness of everyone in attendance except for me. That, combined with their dismissive attitude towards me, led me to conclude something that was inconceivable before, that their distance was because of the color of my skin. It was the only obvious difference that made any logical sense. This day was the first time in my life that I felt truly ashamed to be me. To be conscious of the color of my skin and what that color potentially meant. The shock stung, stung me like the tip of the lash of a whip. It was jarring like that moment in the film The Wizard of Oz where it transitions from black and white to technicolor. And just like Dorothy, I felt I was in a foreign land. It was then that I realized that everything that I saw and heard was white. White music, white colloquialisms, white films, white TV shows, white neighborhoods, white little girls at my grade school, white family members, white, white, white. I also became acutely aware of the presence of my color. I was angry that I could never fit in because I could not change the color of my skin. At this point, the secret of my biological father's race was still hidden from me. I'd never heard anything overtly negative about black people from members of my family. Although Julie's mother, and that was my soon-to-be stepmother, um, once told me that another word for prunes was nigger, nigger toes. It was almost as if they didn't exist. It was true that I had heard derogatory comments about people of Asian descent, gooks, and Mexicans, beaners, or wetbacks. Every other ethnicity was apparently fair game for racist commentary, except black people. Yet in spite of the lack of outward hostility and racial slurs, my family was dismissive of black people and ignored black culture. I could see it in the quick manner that Dad would change the radio station if a song by a black singer came on, or the way the TV channel would automatically get switched from the Jacksons in favor of Donnie and Marie, or from Fat Albert to Speed Racer, or Soul Train to American Bandstand. It was in this subtle way that I came to believe that there was something worse than being Mexican or Vietnamese. At least they existed. They may have been derided, but they were acknowledged. Black people were so unimportant to the larger narrative of our lives that we didn't even recognize their existence, despite the fact that blacks lived in our cities and neighboring communities. One could argue that this erasure or avoidance was simply a matter of taste, the way some people prefer stripes to polka dots or Picasso to Monet. But there were countless incidents like this over the years, small blips that peppered the landscape of my experience that subtly said that black was deficient, inferior. After my racial awakening, I saw evidence of my exclusion everywhere, even in toy stores. Like many little girls, I played with Barbies and baby dolls. But I never felt a sense of kinship with my dolls the way that my sister Malai did. Sitting on our front stoop, I would stare into the face of my baby alive. How many of y'all remember baby alive? 
<laughs> that messy thing. <laughs> a doll that would simulate the noises and bodily functions of a human infant and feel disconnected, even ashamed. Holding it close to my chest, I noted this difference in our skin tones. I knew that if I had a baby, it wouldn't look like my doll. I was embarrassed by the obvious difference in our appearance, but didn't share it with anyone out of shame. I lived in fear that one of the neighbors would state the obvious by yelling out while driving by, that's not your baby. Of course, I could have asked for one of the black dolls in the, in the toy store, but those dolls were for black girls and I wasn't black yet. California, so here I am in California, such a diverse and really cool state, I think, in many ways. It's not Florida. <laughs> and I always say Florida. I don't say Florida. I say Florida. <laughs> um, it's not Florida, but that is where my family relocated when I was nine years old. So um, in reasons that are explored in the book, we very expediently moved from Anaheim, California, which was an incredibly diverse neighborhood, uh, excuse me, city, but particularly our neighborhood, um, and ended up moving to central Florida, specifically Seminole, Seminole County. And um, I had no idea what to expect because I'd spent all of my years in California. And I was a California girl and, you know, we wore vans and, and we skateboarded and wore colors and, you know, there was just a mix, you know, I'm on, on the left side of, of, our, of our home, uh, there was uh, a Hawaiian family, the Malachi's, on the right were the Nuyans, who were Vietnamese, across the street, it was a white family, Rusty. That's all I remember, Rusty, Rusty and his family. Um, and down the street, there were Chicano, Chicano families. But um, I was going to get schooled about what happens when you are um, racially and ethnically diverse and end up moving to a city that is not for anyone who is um, different in any way, who's had that unfortunate experience, <laughs> my sympathies. Um, so this next portion, uh, next and final portion I'm going to read, uh, describes what it was like for me when we moved to central Florida. Florida. Eventually, I learned we actually didn't move to Orlando, but a small town on its outskirts called Goldenrod. Our neighborhood lay smack dab in the middle of Seminole County, the same one where Trayvon Martin would be gunned down decades later by vigilante George Zimmerman. During the late 1970s, Winter Park was best known as the home of Rollins College, a small private liberal arts school that was a popular safety choice for the scions of wealthy Northerners. Winter Park proper was the home to mainly upper middle class white families. Rollins professors and administrators, snowbirds from the north, enjoying their retirement and white-collar professionals. A zoning change to the area soon after our arrival gave us the prestige of a Winter Park address while residing in a lower to middle income subdivision. Over on our side, the occupations were less prestigious. 
police officers, mechanics, newspaper route owners, and the occasional teacher. Winter Park was and remains to this day a predominantly white community. In old Winter Park, kids wore Izod Lacoste shirts and drove their parents' BMWs while silently looking down their noses at those who weren't as well off. Over on our side, the one with the misappropriated Winter Park zip code, many of the kids wore the same clothes as our wealthier neighbors. However, our wardrobes were much more limited. The standard first car for a teen in our neighborhood was an almost ready for the junk pile but still drivable early 70s Volkswagen Beetle whose upgraded sound system often cost more than the car itself. Unlike in old Winter Park where issues like class and race were not discussed, at least publicly, our less sophisticated inhabitants encouraged blatant racism and verbal attacks against anyone who looked different from their white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideal. It may have been the early 80s, but there were still some who wore their red and white painted Confederate belt buckles with pride while dipping skull and red man chewing tobacco. Racial epithets were spat like conjunctions in a sentence. The majority of their vitriol was directed at blacks. However, anyone whose family had immigrated from a country of non-Northern European ancestry was a target for hatred. According to these holdovers from the Jim Crow era, Negras, as they were politely called, niggers when they weren't feeling so politically correct, landed somewhere on the evolutionary scale between apes and humans. In between Orlando and Winter Park lay the town of Eatonville. Eatonville has a rich history. Famed writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston claimed Eatonville as her birthplace, despite having been actually been born in Natasolga, Alabama, having spent her formative years here. Not only is the town the setting for her most famous work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Eatonville also has the distinction of being one of the nation's first incorporated black townships after the Emancipation Proclamation. Hurston described the town as a utopia where black Americans could live independent of the prejudices of white society. Perhaps that was the case during the early 20th century, but by the latter part of the century in the 80s, Eatonville provided local whites with a centralized geographic location for their racism. I witnessed this firsthand in high school when white students, fueled up on beer and marijuana, entertained themselves by speeding down Kennedy Boulevard, the main thoroughfare that cut through the town, shrieking from their car windows, Nigger! 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 to anyone unlucky enough to be outdoors at night. I was horrified by their behavior. Having lived in Orange County, California, I was used to people of all races and ethnicities living peacefully in close proximity to each other. Orlando was extremely segregated by comparison. However, I soon ex just accepted this as the way things were in Florida. So when I wrote the book, uh, I it's separated into thirds. So the, the first portion is from age zero to 20. And then I time hop. And then it's at age 27. And that is when I found my biological mother after 22 years of estrangement. And then um, it stops and then picks up again at 35 when I found her family 
in Hong Kong and traveled overseas to finally meet um, my blood, my kin, the Chinese side of my family that had been denied from me my entire life, and what it was like to, um, to meet these people that I had dreamed and fantasized about. So I want to thank you so much for sharing, sharing your work with us and for um, the courage that you had to write the book and, and your vulnerability and sharing your stories. Thank you so much and for sharing them with us. So I, the first question, what was the inspiration behind writing Black Lotus? And can you tell us the story of your decision to write, write the book? Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, so the story behind it was um, I, Black Lotus is actually my second book. I have a first book that I self-published in 2007 uh, called No More Drama, Nine Simple Steps to Transforming a Breakdown into a Breakthrough, which is a self-help book in which I used um, nine spiritual principles to illustrate a way that we can shift our mindset from being problem-oriented to solution-focused. Sold 8,000 copies of that book and eventually made my way into becoming a full-time writer and public speaker. And so um, I was writing, um, right, oh, gosh, I was doing, I was contributing to different outlets and then um, a woman that I knew became the editor-in-chief of Ebony Magazine. And uh, one of my then mentors suggested that I reach out to her and pitch a story uh, and said, you know, this isn't, your, your background's interesting. Why don't you see if there'd be, if she'd be willing to, to run it. So I reached out to Amy Du Bois Barnett uh, and it turned, it just so happened again, we were talking about the universe and the serendipity of timing. It just turned out that she was working on a package for an issue. It was the multicultural issue. So I submitted the story, and it was entitled Passing Strangely, which is essentially the really condensed 800 or maybe 1,000-word version of this 366-page book. And, um, and it went on to win an NABJ award. That's where I got the award uh, for the Salute to Excellence in the nonfiction category. And so it was after that, look, writing... That whole, like, thinking of, like, writers being as poor as church mouses and, you know, the ideas, of, like, I think about Victorian writers living in these attics with drafts and eating bread and, you know, without a patron and then dying penniless and alone. Um, yeah, that's really kind of how it is, minus the drafts <laughs> and the attic. <laughs> Writing is not, I mean... There are very few people that can make a living um, doing it. And so, but I said, well, how is it that I can, you know, extend this story and also make some money? And so really it was driven financially. It was driven financially. I said, there's been a lot of interest in this. Let me see what I can do. So I wrote the book proposal, pitched it, and it was picked up. So that was really the uh, the initial draw. Um and uh, what was the second part of your, of your question? You said, what was the impetus? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what, what inspired you? And then what, what was the story? So outside it? of the monetary reasons, yeah. um, it, it really, I've got to be honest, I didn't know what I was signing up for when I put together the, the, the proposal. Um, I, I've spent a lot of years in therapy and in recovery groups and done a lot of work on myself. And I did not realize, at least consciously, the uh, resistance that I would have towards going back and writing about uh, what, 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 well, a very, uh, you know, a very painful experience. And um, I think my ignorance, the lack of, of awareness, the fact that I just was like, sure, I can do this. Let's see if I can get a book deal and get a nice advance and I'll write this story and no big deal. It didn't hurt to write the essay. I didn't really think about what that process would be to immerse myself into months and potentially years of writing. So, um, but as I, as I did, um, Right. What I found is that it gave me an incredible opportunity to sort through um, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of ideas around family members um, to reconcile certain relationships um, to to piece together. Um, these, these fragments from my past and to put together a cohesive narrative that ultimately would serve me, could potentially be of service to others, and also, very importantly, for my children, um, that they would know who their mother was, what made me the way I was, who their grandparents were, you know, which I think a lot of people don't have that benefit. Even if you still are connected to your family of origin, a lot of secrets remain secrets and nobody knows. And I, I think it's because, because I have not had that, those traditional bonds to family uh, and extended family, it was very important that I be able to give my children something, whether they wanted it or not, um, that they could pass on to um, their children. Um, so you've had a, an amazing and incredible life. And was it hard to narrow down the book to specific stories and experiences? Or um, were there specific pieces that really emerged that, that needed to be in the book? How, how was that process for you? So I made it clear when I was writing the book that... Uh, the only things that mattered were those that would advance the story about my identity formation, my racial identity formation. So that was the threat. That was what I looked for in different stories that I was told, uh, that I told. And so it wasn't that difficult. It was very clear from the age of zero to 20, that was a very um, important time in my life where I was reconciling all of these lies and half-truths and um, my identity and, um, you know, 
and in, in coming into a space of self-acceptance and in, in cultural and racial pride after being conditioned for so long to think that, um, that black was bad. Um, so, so that was, that was why I stopped the book at the age of 20 right, and picked up at 27, because by 20, I was very, very comfortable in my um, racial and cultural identity. And while there is a whole other book waiting to be written, <laughs> waiting to be written about 20 to 27, I mean, goodness gracious, that's, oh man, that's, that is a whole other book. I mean, it would have been an epic, right? It would have been like a Tolkien, a Tolkien-esque uh, type of book which nobody would want to publish. <laughs> so 20 to 27, I left that out because there really was, weren't any major incidents that shifted my perspective on blackness um, or on my family. And then at 27, obviously reconnecting with my mother and being able to ask her a lot of questions about my past and about who my biological father was and to see if the stories that I was told about who he was by the man who raised me and, um, you know, jibed and, um, and also, um, you know, what it was like to finally be able to see something, see a person that a lot of people take for granted. Um, like I hate Mother's Day, I hate to say it. Like Mother's Day is a very, very painful day for me because you see the sales circulars come and everybody's like, Mother's Day and I love you, mom. And, you're, and I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. You know, and there's a lot of people who have fractured relationships with their mother. Um, the idea of motherhood also, it's, it's sacred. Like, it, there's, it's taboo to talk about the abuse and the neglect and the abandonment that does happen. Um, because it's just, it just doesn't fit into the myth you know, that women are inherently nurturing and inherently love their children. That's just, in, unfortunately, I've experienced that is not the case. So 27 was really about, um, you know, answering those questions, uh, getting those questions answered about my mother and backtracking, kind of filling in the gaps. And then um, after that, again, 27 to 35, there was a lot happening, but no major shifts you know, got married, divorced. I mean, that's in the book too, but it was at 35 going and, um, and meeting my mother's family. And after spending so many years becoming comfortable in my skin, being proudly and unapologetically a black woman, a biracial black woman, and to have this group of people tell me, no, you're not, because of their identity, you know, and to say, I remember they, you know, their thing was, you're not, uh, he wasn't black, he wasn't black, black, he was, he was maybe Brazilian or Puerto Rican, um, that was what they told me, and I mean, I was not going to get into the um, 
African diaspora around the globe and um, you know the percentage of Brazilians with uh, Afro-Brazilians and Puerto Rico and the transatlantic slave trade. I'm like, they're just not gonna get it. And I'm a guest in their house and this is already weird enough as it is. So we're gonna let them ride with this. But it was, it was very painful. It was extremely painful. Like I would think, you know, it's like when I think of, and, and, and when I wrote the book, I said to my literary agent, Robert, who is a white gay, gay male from some small town in Texas, and I said, Robert, this book has got to resonate with you. Like you didn't come out until you were, you know, older, like maybe 20, 21. And you hid who you were because of fear. And you know what it is to live a lie. And now as an out and proud gay male, like could you imagine what it would be to meet extended family who make it conditional, right? That you know, you have to fit into a straight, you, know, you have to be a straight male um, in order to be accepted. Um, and they've got their own spin on it, you know? And I kind of thought of it in, in that context of having someone basically trying to stamp out who you are to make themselves feel comfortable. And that was very, that, again, that was, that, was that was very, very challenging. So that was, the, those were the reasons why the thread were chosen. A big theme of the book is is home and and your search for home, um, lacking security at home and looking to new places and creating a sense of home. So, what do you really want readers to take away regarding the importance of home um, as they're reading your book? the the home The home topic was one that my editor actually picked up on before I did. Um, and even reviewers, as they're reading it, I mean, I'm so close to it that I can't actually tell. It's very hard for me. Like, it's only now that I'm getting used to discussing the book and trying to create some framework for the discussion because, you know, folks will say, oh, you have a new book coming out. And I'd say, yeah. And they'll go, what's it about? And I couldn't come up with a 30-second pitch <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, it's just, it's a really complicated story. Let me just tell you. So um, with home, uh, that is really, uh, I think it's symbolic. You know, home, it is in some aspects, it is quite literal. The need to find a home in the world, because I did grow up in a home. I mean, I wasn't on the streets. I was not homeless. Uh, but in that, in you know, I, I think of the house that I grew up in, not the home that I grew up in, because there is a difference between a house and a home. And as an adult, trying to find that safe space that you can call your own, that one place in the universe uh, that you are um, sheltered, nurtured, protected, I realized that if that was going to occur, it was going to have to emanate from me. So I would have to reach deep inside and find a way to create something that was not inherently, um, that I was not socialized to do. And so one of the ways in which I did reconcile that 
was through, you know, my children and uh, in ensuring that there were all these traditions that I would keep in order to provide them with as much a sense of normalcy as one can have <laughs> being my kid. <laughs> um, and also having this very kind of disrupted and convoluted relationship with an extended family. Um, so while we didn't have a lot of homes that we could visit, family members that we were welcome to, um, to come and spend holidays with, I m made it a priority to try and create that space um, within the four walls of the various homes that we lived. And, I, and I'll be honest that I, in some respects I failed. Um, you can only give what you have. And it's not something that I did, I would not even say I did it exceptionally well. Um, I think I was, I did a decent job, but the truth of the matter is even to this day, I wrestle with the feeling of always being on the outside. Like I've come to a place of acceptance that I'm never going to know what it's like to have that home. That if lightning strikes and I end up getting partnered again, uh, for a long time, <laughs> uh, you know, to that, you know, in a relationship in which you can look into the other person's eyes and say, you know, that's home, right? Um, that it's unlikely that I'll ever know what that is. And does that cause me pain? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's like a dull ache. It's like a, you know, a, a, a bum knee. You, you learn to to, to live with the limp, and you do the best that you can. But uh, I will not sit here and say that, oh, everything's fixed and I'm perfect. And No, I mean, when you under, when you, when you, I think when children and individuals go through these type of traumas, it, it leaves an indelible mark on you, which for some, you know, they spend their entire lives, you know, broken. I'm very grateful that I, have been broken, but I've also been able to heal. And uh, so, yeah. You reveal a lot in the book, and, and you're very vulnerable in the stories that you share in the book. And I'm, I'm curious in that, um, you talked a little bit about how hard it was to write um, earlier, and I'm, I'm curious if what was the healing process like for you in, in writing the book, if, if the book um, did that or if it's changed since you've written the book and, and published it. Mm -hmm. So, healing. Well, as I shared um, initially, there, there were, I was able to construct an internal narrative around me, how I became me, which has been very, very healing. Um, in terms of therapeutic value, I mean, there are probably less labor-intensive ways to go about finding reconciliation within. Um, how, but it, what I found was that in, again, you know, the, uh, one of those serendipitous events that occurred was when I first... I submitted the first chapter to my publisher. The deal was signed 
August, uh, January of 2012, I had eight months to submit that manuscript. And I wrote the first chapter, sent it to my publisher slash editor. She sent it back to me, marked up like crazy. Like, and, and I recoiled. I, it was so confusing. I'm thinking, this is my story. And how come you're asking me all these questions? And I don't even know, what do you mean? Like, if you just give me a chance, like, I'm going to get to that. Why are you asking me this in the first chapter? And I, I got a huge case of writer's block. And I couldn't write the book. And some of it might have been like my, like, hatred of authority as well. <laughs> um, that came into play because I was like, Look, I got some issues with authority, okay? I do. <laughs> um, and I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. It's a good thing. It's, it's what allows me to be an activist, and it allows me to be an advocate, because I like to push back against the system, and I understand where that originates from, the patriarchy in the home being manifest in society, so I get that. Um, but, uh, you know, I could not have told this story had I not basically dug my heels in or ran from it for several years because I ended up meeting a woman on Facebook named Shalina, who is my aunt, uh, one of my gungung, one of my um, maternal uh, grandfather's daughters from a prior relationship. So in the book, you know, my grandfather had three wives, though technically only first wife was a legitimate wife. The other two were concubines. And my grandmother was his third wife and favorite wife. So second wife kind of got short shrift as well as that child. Well, that child was Shalina. So Shalina lives in the United States and has for quite some time. And that was really important because, you know, we found each other on Facebook. We started speaking on the phone. And because of the fact that she had had a similar one, she was acculturated into a Western um, society in a way that the rest of the family members were not because they're still most are in Hong Kong, with the exception of my aunt Esther and her children who are in the U.K., but Shalina also had experienced that feeling of rejection and based temperamentally, you know, she dropped, the, she dropped dime. She just was the one that was like, no, this is the deal. Here's the stuff that your mother didn't tell you. And, you know, there's a lot to be said, um, you know, about, uh, about how important her role, her coming into my life was because she was able to fill in the blanks, which I would have never received through, um, through that side of my family because the wall of silence is very strong. So it all ended up working out. The healing and that story, you know, when, it, when all is said and done, it, it, it has brought me some, um, and I, and you know, and, and I hope, I hope that for those that um, read the book, that they also see that no matter how wonky and just all over the place their experiences are with family, society, 
um, even within their own head and spirit, that you can find a way to undo that Gordian knot, <laughs> that it, it, it can it, it can be done. So, so you were talking too about your your activism and the the systemic issues in our society, um, the and our, our, our racially polarized times. And I'm curious what lessons you're hoping that people who read your book and who really um, engage with your journey, um, what what do you hope they'll draw from from that journey of yours to increased interracial understanding? Mm-hmm. The, the wild thing is, is that the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to write a race book um, because I just, it was just something, I, look, I figured it out for me. I'm not here. I'm not Moses. I'm not trying to lead anybody anywhere. <laughs> like I dealt with it. It's in the past. I just want to leave it alone. But because of the subject matter, yes, I, 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 I have a responsibility to speak on these topics, uh, speak on the topic. So Anyone that follows me on Twitter or on social media or has read my stuff on Huffington Post, I'm quite pointed and direct uh, around issues on social justice and race. So what do I hope? Um, I think that one of the things that I hope will happen is that people will understand how much whiteness is the default in our country, that... um, it, it really, when you hear the term privilege, when you hear white privilege, that white people won't cringe and automatically become defensive and think that what is being said is an attack. It's simply the way things are. Um, and it's not an indictment. It's, it's just simply a truth. Um, so that's one thing, is for a discussion around privilege, for example, my father's privilege as a white, cisgender, heterosexual male, the fact that he felt it was his right and privilege to strip me of my racial identity and cultural heritage as it pertains to my um, the Chinese side of my family, uh, because it didn't fit his narrative, because he was not concerned about race, because it one would have forced him to think about a subject that really didn't impact him, and then two that. Um, you know, as a Baha'i, I do talk about the fact that you know, my, I was raised in a, in, a, in a Baha'i home. So as a Baha'i, you know, that's part of the teachings that, you know, kind of like post-racialism is a part of, 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 of the doctrine. So for him, on multiple levels, it wasn't a big deal. But the danger, the danger that exists when we attempt to foist certain ideologies like, I'm just gonna use the term post-racialism on our children. For example, those who have mixed race children or biracial children or multiracial children, whatever the terminology is you choose to use. Um, You know, I've I've encountered uh, parents who 
really take exception to the fact that I don't identify as biracial. The fact that I say I am a black woman who is of biracial descent is a very clear distinction for me. But um, in one case, there was a woman, and, and interestingly, it was a black woman. So here I'm talking about white privilege on one side. Well, here let's talk about a, a black American woman who has a son who is half Korean. And she read my book and was really pissed off. She was really angry that I chose to identify the way that I chose because she is making it her mission, mission to raise her son um, as mixed race identity. You know, so when that boy is asked, well, what is your background or what are you? He's not going to say I'm black. He's going to say I'm mixed. And so, um, you know, I, I, my personal views on that is that it is dangerous, particularly in our society where phenotypically, right, it depends, our, our proximity to blackness is often dictated by our phenotype. And if we look black, then we are going to, or brown, or more Asian than, right, than the other mixture, whatever, it, the whiteness, or the other, uh, that you will bear a brunt of, of, of racism and oppression and marginalization that someone who doesn't. You know, I think for parents of mixed-race children to really take a dual approach to shaping their identity, because I do think it is um, ill-advised to put that stamp of, you're not in this case, you're not black or you're not whatever, you are mixed because that will not prepare you for how to deal with life in this society as it exists. It's a great ideal. It would be lovely if it worked that way, but that is not in fact how it works. So what ends up happening, like in my case where I grew up with that post-racial mindset, um, as a young person, um, you know, I came out into the world completely oblivious and unaware of what it was that I was dealing with and what the implications of my race and even my gender um, and class, like how that, how that would impact how I'm treated in society. So I think that's a, a second thing. And the last thing that I hope that people will take away from the book is that, um, is compassion, you know, compassion and, and the understanding of the diversity of our emotional, psychological, and spiritual um, exist existences. Um, we, in American society, there is this very heavy emphasis on, you know, this pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, kind of attitude towards um, self-advancement, uh, towards advancement, personal, professional, emotional, whatever. That is just a matter of mind over matter. And that those who fail to advance are somehow lazy, inferior, entitled, whatever. And that that has to stop. And the judgment 
that we have in our society for those who uh, do not navigate. You know, for the, for the young Salai who was promiscuous, the young Salai who was with a batterer, the young Salai who was a blackout drunk, the young Salai who was a shoplifter, the young Salai who was expelled from high school, the young Salai who was um, lost, that um, those that are in that space deserve compassion and understanding and support and not to be looked at. Don't think in terms of exceptionalism, you know, it's very dangerous. And to know that for every one of us that manages to escape our childhoods, that there are hundreds if not thousands that don't. And that those of us who have the privilege of moving forward have a responsibility not to separate or other ourselves, but to be there and to support others on their journey um, with as much compassion and understanding as possible. I just wanna say thank you so much for sharing, sharing your story and being with us here. We, we are definitely interested in your story in San Francisco. <laughs> okay, thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.